Welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers, producers, industry professionals, and policymakers to hear their stories and expert opinions on matters relevant to both our urban and our rural communities. Before I get into this week's episode with Hiwaki Ikanoa, I just want to take a look back at the month of April to see how, in general, our commodities fared. And what we saw in April was international demand for grains, dairy and forestry products were very strong, driven primarily by increased demand from China. Demand for products such as fruit is also robust. With that in mind, continued supply chain issues with container shortages and disrupted shipping schedules are making it extremely challenging to deliver goods to market on time and in the immaculate condition the market demands. This, of course, is most difficult for chilled products with a limited shelf life. Demand for higher value produce, which tends to be consumed in restaurants rather than at home, is expected to lift as lockdown restrictions are reduced. The US and Europe are on track to have a large proportion of their population vaccinated within three to four months, which is good news. Assuming vaccines prove effective at combating new strains of COVID-19 and infection rates fall, These nations can look forward to a return to some form of normality, or the new norm. This will strengthen demand for our products, particularly for venison and top cuts of lamb like racks, for example. Dairy prices are pumping with a forecast of around $7.70 per kilogram of milk solids. Lamb, as I mentioned last week, is strengthening. Forestry prices are solid, but increased shipping costs are taking the glory out of transactions. Beef is slightly softer, but stable, with increased competition in China. Now this week, I'm talking with Hilton Collier on the show. Hilton is a farm consultant and is deeply involved in iwi agribusiness and is part of the Hiwaki Ikanoa program. Let's check in with Hilton. Hello Hilton, thank you for your time today. Tēnā Angus, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Please can you tell me about the work that you do? So I'm a farm consultant by training uh, after graduating at Lincoln College in the 1980s, uh, went on to work for then the Department of Agriculture uh, and my career has evolved to the point where uh, I do a lot of farm supervision work of large Māori owned businesses both in Northern Hawke's Bay and up here on the East Coast. Uh, and one of the, the chores I now have uh, is to lead the Māori Agribusiness Unit Pākehiro Farms, which is owned by Ngāti Parau. So uh, very fortunate to be able to come home and work within our own iwi-based agribusiness uh, and also to maintain those connections throughout Northern Hawke's Bay and uh, much of the East Coast more broadly. So day-to-day farm management is most of what I do but our scale and the issues we're becoming more and more involved with mean we have needed to start looking more broadly. So looking at factors and influences beyond the farm gate, both some of the opportunities that our scale and longevity of ownership provides, such as working with First Light in the production and export of Wagyu cattle, and also in programs like Hewaka Ekeno, where the development of policy influences and impacts on the way our farms operate. Fantastic. And just on that, why is it important that the Hewaka Ekeno partnership is a three-way between government, sector and Māori? So history 
tells us that the design, development, the implementation of a lot of well-intended policies have often occurred with an absence uh, of Māori voices around the table. And the challenge we have is that Māori have a very different view. We have different operational issues we need to deal with that often the, the development of policy, the execution, do not recognise the unique factors around the legislation under which Māori land is held. Um, and it also fails to recognise that our shareholders, who often are the community that surround the businesses we operate, will have very different views from mainstream. And I think we're seeing some of those differences in opinion now in the environmental space, where our shareholders hold our farming operations to a much greater level of accountability than some of the compliance issues we're seeing in mainstream. So it's just a different world to operate in. So I think we're very fortunate to be part of that discussion because we can make sure the design, development and implementation of policies um, meets our objectives and we're able to comply with them and mm. don't alienate them in the way that some of the past policies have done. Why is Māori land ownership different, Hilton? Firstly, Māori do not have, traditionally have not had a land ownership model such as we see today. The land ownership model today under which much of our land is owned is imposed on us. Uh, and we should remember the, the model was first introduced in this country to enable the alienation of Māori from their land. Traditionally, Māori land was held by a collective. Its use and operation was for the good of the whānau or hapu uh, under a mana whenua model. And the whānau leadership would determine how that land was used and who had to, the right to use the land. It also meant there were certain obligations to ensure the land was not harmed or used in a way that deprived others of benefit from that land. So then if you look at Māori land ownership within the modern legislation, what we see is a piece of legislation called Te Tura Whenua Māori. Mm -hmm. And to operate uh, under this legislation and at scale, it requires us to create a corporate body of governors. So we have to have boards. Mm. Um, we have to maintain share registers. We have to have administrators, accountants and auditors just to deal with the ownership and the statutory frameworks under which we hold these businesses. Mm. We then need to employ farm managers and staff under that. So mm. there's a whole layer of complexity of decision making and legislation that imposes this huge fixed overhead. And then, of course, we may have upwards of 6,000 shareholders. So these are mm. hugely complex businesses mm. um, ultimately pulled together under these land ownership models. And that's very different to what you might see from your typical uh, owner-operator model in New Zealand, where it's mum and dad and an immediate family. Uh, they are very different structures that hold the land and that therefore affects the way they operate. Mm. What values do Te Okaha bring to the partnership? I think Te Okaha represents a view of intergenerational guardians of the land 
and we tend to bring a much more holistic approach looking at all the elements of the business environment under which we operate. So our concerns aren't just about uh, climate change and greenhouse gases. We also have concurrent concerns about the state of our waterways, indigenous biodiversity, uh, as well as the impact of these policies on the communities where we operate. And often these communities are also our shareholders. So I think it's that that long-term, that longevity of connection to land and place that Te Okaha brings uh, in providing that that voice of the Māori agribusiness sector to He Waka Ikenō. Mm. And what does success look like? I think success looks like a, uh, a place where we can all adopt a much more holistic way to our environment. Uh, so we're talking about greenhouse gases and biodiversity, freshwater policies, that all these things are just a natural part of our operating model. Where we think about how the benefits of our operation don't just uh, accrue to ourselves as the landowner or the operator, but we also can contribute um, economic wealth and well-being to a much broader community. And I think if we can do that in a way where culturally we're driven towards continual improvement of both our environment and the communities in which we operate, we're more likely to have a much brighter future than I think we have now. Mm. How will Tiakuha engage with Māori agribusiness, particularly at a farm level, and how does this differ? So engagement with the Māori agribusiness sector is especially challenging for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you have two decision-making levels. You have uh, the owners or shareholders and you have governors who tend to take uh, a longer-term view of the business, who make decisions about strategy and resourcing. And then you have day-to-day operational decision-making. Professional farm managers such as myself uh, or other people who are employed to uh, make the day to say decisions to deliver the strategy to shareholders. Mm. So this will mean lots and lots of uh, face-to-face meetings, lots of cup of tea. Mm -hmm. It means different types of communication channels to supplement mainstream dialogue. Uh, And often it is simply uh, a matter of being able to identify who the key people are and making sure those key people within each of the agribusinesses are well informed about the developments that are going on. Mm. In general, how is Māori agribusiness tracking at a farm gate level? And is that land farmed differently? Those are great questions. So I think at a farm gate level, we're seeing some very sophisticated and successful Māori agribusiness units that have developed very diverse operating models where they might participate at a number of points along the value chain. For example, if I think about um, livestock farming, mm. you know, there's a Māori agribusiness that has farms, they have a meat processing and a meat exporting business. Mm. Another large dairy operation uh, has a number of Māori partners who are also involved in milk collection and the exporting of dairy-based products 
internationally. Mm. So those businesses are performing very, very well. Mm. Uh, and you know, we're starting to see much greater focus on how do we extract value as opposed to volume. And when you mm. have a shareholder base that continually demands greater returns, you know, I think it forces us to be more innovative mm -hmm. and to be smarter about how we use our resources to capture value. Uh, and then, of course, at the other extreme, we have those who continue to struggle, uh, such as we might see in some of the harder hill country, uh, especially up here on the East Coast as one example. Mm -hmm. I think the other challenge we're seeing is with our production systems being limited by tikanga or the expectations of whānau about how we operate, uh, it poses a whole lot of challenge on these businesses. Mm. Aside from that, though, on a day-to-day -day business, livestock still need to be fed. So in that respect, we're like any other farmer in New Zealand, uh, trying to work out how to operate their system efficiently uh, and how to get the best production they can possibly get from their farm businesses. Mm. Hilton, do you think this program will ultimately future-proof farming in New Zealand for Māori and indeed the industry as a whole? I think the program is an attempt to solve a problem here now today. I don't think the program goes far enough. Um, okay. You know, I don't understand how we can have a, a program that looks to address greenhouse gases without addressing fresh water, without addressing biodiversity, without addressing community impacts. And not only uh, Māori farms, but I think uh, non-Māori-owned farms also operate in a similar space. And I'd suggest most people uh, on the land are part of a community. And I would suggest we all tend to look at how do we achieve better outcomes for both ourselves and our whānau, community, as well as our environment. So um, I think Hiwaka Ekeno uh, is unfortunately a bit limited in its scope. Uh, but it's a very useful first step to start to get us to work together to better understand the expectations of each other. Some great thoughts there, Hilton. I know you're busy, man. I thank you very, very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure, Angus, anytime. Thank you to Hilton for joining me on the show. It was great to have his input. And by the sounds of things, he is a very busy man with many moving parts in his work. Whether anyone thinks this program is a good one or not, the fact remains we have signed up to the Paris Agreement, which means we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. I believe outcomes will be met that ultimately meet the needs of farmers and the environment. And from a farmer's perspective, it simply has to. I also believe our farmers are already much more efficient than what is currently recognised. And once we have a handle on total on-farm sequestration, that will come to light. It is pleasing to see Trade and Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor travelling to the UK and Europe for free trade negotiations. Let's hope this is fruitful and a deal can be struck with both the EU and the UK before Christmas. It appears Australia already have the jump on us and may have their free trade deal completed by the middle of the year. Keep on keeping on, farmers. You are more important now than ever. And remember to have your say. Email your feedback at hiwakaekanoa.nz. That's your feedback at hiwakaekanoa.nz. We are, after all, 
all in this together. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factum Agri.